Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, we're going to talk about the future of two-party politics in the UK. Is the big threat from the people who've quit, or is it from the people who've stayed behind? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, and the LRB has a new podcast of its own. It's called The State Of... It's hosted by LRB editors Joanna Biggs and Tom Crew. And the first episode, which is available now, is with John Lanchester, a guest on this podcast, and Patricia Lockwood talking about the state of the internet. You can find it wherever you find your podcasts or at the LRB website, lrb.co.uk. We have with us today Helen Thompson, Professor of Political Economy, Mike Kenny, Professor of Public Policy. I think the last time the three of us were around this table, we were talking about the World Cup. We were. Hell of a long time ago. (laughs) Can we start with the independent group? I think we're probably going to have to end up calling them TIG. It's too much of a mouthful. They're inching towards becoming a party. They are indicating that they plan to put up candidates in elections, though we think not in imminent by-elections. The obvious question is, what is their platform going to be? Their reasons for leaving are pretty clear, but what are are the reasons are they going to give the voters to vote for them, given, as we talked about before, really the only thing they absolutely have in common is they want a second referendum. Is that the platform? There are two dilemmas, I think, that they're going to need to figure out before they can even get near to a coherent platform. I mean, one is the dilemma of, are they really about reconstituting the Labour Party? Is this a sort of early move to sort of refound Labour in some sense? Or is this an entirely new kind of entity? Is this the centre, political centre being sort of reformed? And on that first one, once they have three Conservative former Conservative members, it just does not look plausible as a reconstituting of the Labour Party, does it? Uh, it, it? And we'll come on in a second to Tom Watson, the other reconstitutor yeah. of the Labour Party. I, I mean, look, it makes it harder. They clearly have one or two people in their ranks, particularly it looks as if Chakramuna is up for some different kind of project, thinking about whether we can recast the centre here. You know, resolving that is, I still think, a dilemma for them. But then there's a second dilemma, which is that on either of those counts, where they go to in platform terms looks quite tricky. I mean, on the one hand, if you if you sort of do a retread of something that feels and looks a bit like the third way, a bit of social liberalism, a bit more pro-business, a bit sceptical about state intervention, there's a pool of voters who may be up for that, but it's actually a very difficult pool in which to fish. There are other parties who I think are likely to outflank you. And that looks like London and maybe some of the university towns. If you think about going to where the political centre really is in Britain, in terms of public opinion, which is not where it was back in the day of the days of the third way, you probably go somewhere else. You go towards the pool of voters who are most up for a new kind of politics or most up for leaving behind the two main parties. And they are more pro-redistribution they are voters who are more in favour of some parts of the Corbyn platform, I think, on, on sort of redistribution economic terms. But also, a lot of them are probably more socially conservative, are more moved by questions of identity and some of the anxieties that have come through. I think at the moment it's really just too soon to tell because there's too many different things that are going on. On the one hand, 
the most straightforward thing that this party is, as you say, is a second referendum party. And I noticed on Chuck Muna's Twitter page that he's got some sort of people's vote slogan across the top of it. So I think he, on the one hand, is wanting to say, look, let's do politics in a different kind of way. I think that's a bit disingenuous, but in fact, more than a bit disingenuous, but leave that aside. If you say he is the most vocal member of it, at least thus far, therefore it looks like to get to a position where there's a second referendum. And as Mike said, that has already brought some change through the threat to the Labour Party's position. On the other side, one of the things that's clearly going on in terms of the timing of what's happened is to do with the anti-Semitism crisis in the Labour Party. And there's still a lot of stuff there still to play out. It's far from clear that the Labour Party can be kept together in any at all on that issue. Then you've got the, the three Conservatives. Now, on the one hand, I think that Sarah Wollaston and Heidi Allen are people who really could have been in the Blairite Labour Party. Anna Subri isn't. And she's also got really very different views from the others on, say, the coalition government and austerity. Yeah, and fiscal, I was going to say austerity on, on fiscal, is the one. On fiscal um, austerity. So she looks like a real outlier now. You can say that one individual is really going to shape how this thing goes. I don't think so. But it, I think at the same time, it is true that there is a group of voters who are disillusioned conservative voters for whom this will be quite appealing. The people under 50 who are pretty keen on David Cameron regarded that sort of socially liberal conservative party that was not pro-European as such, but anti-European union people in the Conservative Party. They don't seem to be particularly comfortable with either Theresa May's version of the Conservative Party or the ERG's version of the Conservative Party. So I think there's a pool of voters or ex-Conservative voters or at the moment Conservative voters to pull on. But the way in which the Labour Party issues play out, particularly I would say the anti-Semitism issue, are going to have a more significant impact on the direction of travel than what's going on on the Conservative side. And given part of their appeal is they have to pitch themselves as some kind of new politics. The one thing that they've all consistently said is people are tired of where we are now, yet they don't look new at all. Particularly, Mike, on your point, that, that you know, there is a centre out there which is not the conventional third-way centre. It's a lot of voters who feel unrepresented in various ways. But if you think, of, I've talked about this a lot, the, the two big majorities that there are out there still, which are people who didn't go to university and people who are, relatively speaking, older generations. Those are the two majority groupings that you could pull together. So you have here, I, I looked, so all of them went to either university or have a, some form of higher education, as is true of all Liberal Democrats, if they join with them too. So they become the university party. They're all career politicians. I mean, they, they absolutely look like not some kind of new break with what careerist politics has been, but just career politicians looking for a new path for their careers. I don't see how this group of MPs makes the case that this is politics not as normal. I think broadly that's right. There's a certain limitation to what they can do because of who they are, as you say, how they look, and the fact that they are career politicians in Westminster. I mean, that sets some parameters around what you can do in terms of doing politics differently or trying to appeal to different constituencies. But at the same time, I think I think it is important to stress in the short term the potential impact of having a group of people who are essentially not the existing parties and are able just to talk about politics differently. We're going to hear a lot of rhetoric about politics 
being renewed. And we're also going to hear a lot of things that are, I think, slightly uncomfortable to the other parties about the need to level with people, the need to have some pluralism within the party. So they can, in fairly limited ways, but I think they can start doing things, and they're already doing that, really, which actually just present a rather different ethos. And that's maybe not going to, you know, that's not going to win everyone over. And there's a long way to go. And the platform question is key. But I think there is a dynamic actually, within the current parliament. Obviously, their problem is beyond the current parliament. I'm, I have to I'm pretty unpersuaded that you can go a long way with that kind of talk. I mean, they're also saying, as I understand it, that they think, and you hear more and more of this, that there is another kind of centre ground out there, which is, this is very third way. It's just people who want better evidenced policies. They want policies that are more thought through. They're kind of the sensible party, the grown-up party. And that seems to me just to fundamentally misunderstand electoral politics because people have never voted for... But that, that, that's the part of it that I think... Evidence-based policy. Sure, and I think that's part of it, that there is a sort of Blairite retread in, in aspects of it. If you look at the uh, statement of values that they released, which I know has been widely <laughs> ridiculed, but it is interesting, the first point on that is actually about patriotism and is also about, I mean, it's quite a sort of trenchant note about Britain defending its borders. It's a mishmash, quite clearly. And they've, they've tried to sort of, I suppose, go to, the, to something that they can all sign up to. I suspect that actually this is a group who have some sense of the dilemma here and are just going to find it very difficult to get through that. I mean, I think that, I still think that the, the bottom line, if you like, um, here is, is that why is this happening? I mean, it's happening for two reasons. It's happening because of the second referendum issue, and it happened in the causal sense in that respect when it looked like the second referendum possibility had been defeated after the, what had gone down the night of the Cooper amendments and the Brady amendments. And then it's happened because of what's going on in the Labour Party with anti-Semitism and the, the peak that that had reached around Luciana Berger's position. If those two things weren't in place, we wouldn't be in this position now, I don't think. Now, the second one is, is comp- very complicated, and I'd say there's a long way to go in terms of moving Labour to a different position where that issue is concerned. And it may be that the different parts of the party simply cannot be reconciled over what's at stake there but you would expect the first one to happen because you know Britain is engaged in a an extremely transformative moment in terms of leaving the European Union at a time in which there's very significant discontent amongst a section of the electorate and amongst a section of the parliamentary class with Britain leaving the European Union and if you look at when past splits in parties have occurred they have tended to occur at these crisis moments in terms of Britain reorientating its position in the world in relation to its domestic politics or in Europe or the world in relation to its domestic politics. So would we expect there to be a a breakup of the existing party system or at least profound tensions in the existing party system at this moment of Britain leaving the European Union? Yes. It's just that it's this time happening in in conjunction with this crisis in the Labour Party at the same time which is of a different kind. Because in a way that was going to be my question, which is maybe I started on the wrong note by suggesting, well, you can't just be the second referendum Remain party. Why can't you just be? Actually, maybe that's the way they should go. And if they're going to have a long-term future, there will need to be a party that, assuming Brexit does happen, if it does happen, that is the party that says we want to undo this. And there will always be a significant number of voters who will be drawn to that party. So I think that's where their effect on the Labour Party is really important. You know, already, as we've said, you can see that just the sheer fact of of them coming together, pitching in this way, has had an impact on Labour's 
uh, leadership's positioning. But, but, but I can't see Labour becoming the party that says we are the undoing Brexit party. No, that, I, that's not going to happen. No, but of course Corbyn won't be there forever. And Even whoever succeeds Corbyn, uh, I don't think is going to be the... If you've got a membership that is clearly overwhelmingly positioned in one way on Europe, you're going to get candidates who are going to come forward and will find their way to appealing to that sentiment. So I, I don't agree with that. I think actually beyond Corbyn, that this does begin to play out potentially in a different way. But there's another thing I think that's been a bit overlooked in the commentary on them, is that what they've done, I think, is sort of bring to an end the period since the 2017 election, when a lot of non-Corbynite MPs tried to essentially find an accommodation with Corbyn as leader by saying, look, we don't like the guy, but he looks like he's an electoral asset. And maybe we can live with the domestic programme because it's a sort of slightly more left-wing version of social democracy. And a lot of Labour figures from different bits of the party signed up for that, including very senior people like Gordon Brown. And actually, I think what they've done is allow the space for Tom Watson to emerge and more or less announce the death of that particular period. And Again, I think the point is that the effect they will have on the Labour story is really quite profound, potentially, in the short term. We'll come on to Tom Watson in a second. The thing that's difficult in terms of the impact on the Labour Party, where the EU's concerned, is, is we don't know yet what the end game on Brexit is. So in this sense that they've jumped ahead of themselves, because are they the second referendum party for the time being, or the second referendum faction? But that's a different position than being the return to the European Union party particularly because how much support that second position is going to have in the short term is going to be dependent on the actual terms in which Britain ends up leaving the European Union. So I see Mike's point there is going to be demand from the Labour Party members to become the return to the European Union party, or at least that there could be. And you can see that because Corbyn's got this particular history as a Eurosceptic, that he has been an impediment, or is an impediment, I should say, to Labour moving to the a strong second referendum position now. But Labour's got a predicament, regardless of whether Jeremy Corbyn is leader or not, with the European Union question, because it would be a big deal for one of the two parties to become, in the short term, the return to the European Union party, and they we want to undo the referendum quite quickly, because that is a voting problem. Whatever the members want, Labour's electoral coalition phrase quite badly. I agree. And I, I can't see it, which is why I think there is a gap in the market for a new party, because there will be, it may, may only be 15, 20, 25 percent, but there will be a significant number of voters who want a party to say, we're going to undo this. One last, the independent group question. Parties like this need a by-election or few by-election kind of successes. It's sort of how it tends to go. They're going to have to start showing that they can win votes. Do you see places where They've got a chance. I mean, the old SDP surprised people by winning by-elections in Glasgow and various places. But with this group, especially given, come the next general election, frankly, none of them, as things stand, look likely to retain their seats unless there's a big shift. Where are they going to start showing they can win votes? Well, they've got to be careful about the seat that they pick. I mean, I think the um, parallel there with the SDP is really interesting because they'd be pretty brave if they took on some of the kind of seats. Went up to Glasgow. Went up to Hillhead. I, I, I don't quite Put see Chuck that. Put Chucker up in Hillhead. So I think, you know, they will be looking 
I'm sure they will be waiting for the right kind of seat. Which you Yeah, know, but you can't wait for long. I, I, I think, well, it's difficult. But also, I mean, it goes back to the, the point about we don't know how this is going to play out in terms of Brexit. And, and also, to add in, we don't know whether the general election is going to come soon. Because that clearly for them is is the sort of existential threat on the horizon that that might actually come along and wipe them all out. So I can see that the question, you know, the dilemma about the choosing a by election is made even more difficult actually by the the potential prospect of a general election. I think it's quite difficult to think of actually constituencies where you can say that they would have a reasonable chance. I mean, I mean, just thinking off the top of my head where there isn't going to be a by-election, I presume, because we had one in the last parliament, would be Richmond, somewhere where you're going to have see that the fairly upper-end middle-class area where the Liberal Democrats have got a history of at least doing reasonably well. Now, you've got to then also compete with the Liberal Democrats, and I, I don't think that that's actually so difficult because I think the Liberal Democrat brand is very badly damaged, and in some sense I think that it is plausible that over time that this there will be a proto party becomes some version of the Liberal Democrats rebranding. I mean, they could agree quite early on, couldn't they, to stand aside for each other? They could, but at the same time, is is that that territory where the Liberal Democrats are still camped, so to speak, is where they need to win it. Because where else are you going to? I mean, for instance, we may have a by-election coming up in Peterborough. That's not fertile no, ground. Right? I, I, I would have thought not. You can't have seats with large Labour majorities, and there's a lot of seats now with large Labour majorities that Labour hold. Once you get into you know, the kinds of seats that the Conservatives hold in the Midlands, for instance, you're not also going to want to be running, running there. So the electoral geography just doesn't look very promising. Wales? <laughs> I think Wales is interesting in, in general terms for potentially a ripe territory for them. But I think, again, they would have to pick their seat carefully and they'd probably want to look at the more metropolitan seats in Wales. I mean, it, it is interesting that to think about the territorial aspect of this because they all represent English seats. And the question of whether the independent group is going to become an entity that can appeal outside England is, I think, a really, I mean, is, is a huge question for them. I mean, presumably Wales is a better bet than Scotland. And Wales does look a better bet than Scotland because you've got, you know, a very interesting moment where you've got a new head of the Welsh Labour Party, a less charismatic figure than his predecessor. He's struggling to connect with the electorate. And you've got Plaid, actually, in recent polling, doing really quite well. Now, that actually looks like potentially promising territory for a centre-left party that comes out very strongly in relation to Remain, but only in the right constituencies. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Get up to 30% off wedding jewellery at BlueNile.com and remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. So let's talk about the other threat to Labour, but there's an equivalent threat on the other side, which is what Tom Watson has been talking about, which is setting up a grouping within the Labour Party in Parliament, which is not an alternative party. So maybe it is a kind of party within a party. And if it has a mirror on the other side, there is in the Conservative parliamentary grouping, the ERG, who are sometimes described as a party within a party. They have organisational structures, but they don't compete electorally in those terms. 
What is Tom Watson up to, do you think? And what would be the nature of this grouping? So it's been pitched around the idea that there needs to be, within the rival traditions of Labour, space for what he called the social democratic tradition. And I think also in a couple of versions I saw of it, the Christian democratic tradition, which is interesting too. I'm not sure whether that's a significant part of this or not, but it might be given... As you mentioned, Gordon Brown, I mean, this has some connections to that version of Labour, which had an accommodation with Corbyn, and that is clearly now broken. What is this thing? It looks to me like the bigger threat. I think it is. I mean, at one level, it's it's a banner announcing that there will be a social democratic group or a group that will meet under that heading is, I think, a way of moving away from the, the previous period. So it signals... It's the end of the accommodation. It's the end of the accommodation, and it is a banner that quite a wide range of MPs can gather under. And also, it is significant, I think, that Tom Watson has had a really good few weeks and has emerged in many ways as the undisputed champion now of that non-Corbynite bit of the Parliamentary Labour Party. And and that, I think, is really important. I think, actually, the parallel to understand this is is probably not the ERG, partly because the the parties work differently and the EIG is obviously so focused on one existential issue, one particular issue. I think you need to go back actually into Labour's history and think about the ways in which factions formed and worked in the post-war Labour Party, so really after the defeat of, of 51 and the formation of the Bevanite group and then the sort of counter-mobilisation, the revisionists emerging. And, you know, the Labour Party, until the new Labour period, had these kind of quite institutionalised factions within it. And I, I think in a sense, this is reaching back into that history, actually. And the question then is, how stable does this become? The difference, it seems to me today, is that you've got the very real threat of defection. And I agree with what Helen said earlier. I think the anti-Semitism issue is particularly destabilising because there are just clearly MPs for whom that just the sort of sense of moral sort of recoil around that is so powerful that that then feeds into their sort of decisions here. So at the moment, it's a bit of an empty space. The really big question, though, is are they going to start filling it up with some ideas? Are they actually going to say we're in favour of social democracy, but we actually accept that it's not clear what that means right now? I think, again, that it's hard to separate what's going on with Tom Watson faction, if we call it, that from the events of the the last few weeks, because it seems to me that the the spur for this has been the anti-Semitism issue, and that is what he's tried to take the initiative on in saying he's essentially that he's going to have his own complaints process, and then that's what he's had a huge row with the secretary of the of the party about. But underlying the trigger cause, so to speak, is the fact that there always was a state of near civil war between the Parliamentary Labour Party and the members. Because we, in some sense we've got so used to Corbyn as the, the leader of the Labour Party, I think we can somewhat forget the fact that a year into his leadership, you know, like 172 of his colleagues resigned and precipitated a leadership election. There's nothing like that's happened in a British uh, in the, that, political party. There the parallels break down with the, with the 50s uh, and 60s. Before, and he was saved by the members. And it's clear that the members now, although many of them are unhappy with him, about the Brexit issue are going to keep him in place. There isn't a way of removing Jeremy Corbyn from the leadership of the Labour Party. So those in the Parliamentary Party who've 
in some sense can no longer tolerate him any longer and I think the anti-Semitism issue is why that has come to the fore and now making a different tactical choice about how to deal with that but they can't actually remove him from the leadership. But the irony of it is that Tom Watson is staking his claim on the fact that he's the only other person who has a mandate from the membership and that he can't be removed either. I'm not sure he can't be removed I mean I think that's a slightly more open question but That is a big part of his pitch here. He is the other one who can say that I was put in my post by the members. It is, but there is a reality to Jeremy Corbyn's claim to that (laughs) that is not there in Tom Watson's claim. I mean, a political reality. reality. There's a political reality. There's reality and then there's reality. So, I mean, there was a polling recently, I think it was the um, ESRC party member survey. I think it had over 60% of members of the Labour Party saying Jeremy Corbyn's doing a good job. This is pretty recently. So you're absolutely right. I mean, that's that's a bedrock of support. That the, and there's a big mismatch there, not just with the electorate, but with Labour voters, with Labour because voters. Labour voters do not believe yeah. that he's doing a good job. To go back to the Social Democratic group, they obviously are thinking both about very much their own immediate position and some of the choices that they have to make around anti-Semitism and so on, and also around Brexit. But also, they are clearly thinking about that other group, the Labour voters. The problem they have got, the big, big problem, is Labour members. And going back to the the history of factionalism, what those factions were about was actually trying to basically contest the party from top to bottom. It was a sort of organisational structure which was about trying to you know, get control of CLPs and so on. And that looks like a really long slog. And it's such a turn-off, that, as well. I mean, that's the other thing I'm just so struck by. When It's all very passionate and heated, but when you look at what's being said, so much of it is procedural. You know, the arguments around anti-Semitism, about rival processes, and then you read the language that's coming from Jenny Formby or whatever, and it is so deeply, unappealingly bureaucratic and also it's so still driven around meeting culture you know that that's the bit that hasn't really changed in the Labour Party and clearly there's an effect somewhere where a lot of the kind of members who might quite like the social democratic group have either walked away or just are just not active at all because that combination of proceduralism but also the kind of you know some of the ethos that is now projected parts of momentum is a real turnoff for people. There is another question here which relates to what we're talking about with the independent group, which is, again, Tom Watson is trying to say these traditions need to be heard. He said they need to be heard on the front bench. That's not going to happen anytime soon either. So we need this grouping. And a thought that the social democratic, maybe broadly understood Christian democratic traditions, have a wider appeal than the narrow Corbynite view in Labour terms. And yet, We know, looking around the world, looking around Europe, the brand that is in most trouble is social democracy. And actually, the further left versions, same in the United States, are the ones that have not just traction among members, but a wider appeal. Is there a risk here that, like the independent group, if the brand is a kind of evidence-based, third-way, policy-oriented politics, social democratic politics looks old, not new. It looks tired, not fresh. And actually, there aren't that many people who want to vote for it. I mean, if you look at France, (laughs) it's nobody. Yeah, I don't think that argument works, though, because I think that Jeremy Corbyn has taken the Labour Party on domestic issues in a basically social democratic direction. This is not actually what Corbyn would have signed up to in domestic politics in terms of economic transformation, the 1980s version of Corbyn that we all first you know, were aware of. That, that Labour manifesto from the last um, general election could easily be described as social democratic. The point of departure between what Watson represents in this respect and what Corbyn is, the foreign policy 
questions and that is why the, the anti-Semitism question is about a lot more than just individual members being disciplined for anti-Semitic remarks because underneath the clash lies a really different view of the world. That's in substantive terms what the Watson faction can't tolerate about Corbyn, not that it's socialism as opposed to social democracy. I don't think they really disagree that much. They might disagree about the fact they do disagree about the Brexit question, but when you go beyond that, I'm not sure that there's that much of a chasm between what they think about those questions. So in a way, the, the other way to put it is a lot hangs in British politics on interpreting why people voted Labour in 2017. It's often said it was because this was a very popular manifesto. But had that been the manifesto of an Yvette Cooper-led Labour Party, say... I think there's a reasonable chance it wouldn't have flown. And the reason it was so appealing is people didn't associate it with a fairly kind of conventional, maybe slightly more left social democratic view. But because it came from Corbyn, people kind of believed that it was fresher than it was. Is that possible? I, I, I think that the, the, the bigger picture that you sketch about what's been happening to centre-left parties across Europe it is a very striking trend. I mean, in a sense, the Labour Party has been a bit protected by the way British politics yeah. works. Two-party politics, two party what politics we're here to talk about today. Has, has actually sort of buffeted them to an extent. Then I, I do tend to think that the Corbyn phenomenon did make a difference. But also... Going back to 2017, it was also the May phenomenon and the, the, the particular, you know, the disastrous campaign and so on. So there was some contingencies there as well. I think Helen's right. I mean, the foreign policy dimension is really where the biggest cleavage opens up. In calling or putting together this this kind of banner around social democracy and having to respond to the independent group, I actually think you'll see more sort of rethinking going on on the domestic front, actually, in non-Corbynite circles. They've almost got to start to figure out what are they for that is not just renationalising the railways and is not the kind of social market economy. And I think you will begin to see a push in that direction. So is it possible, given this is being driven by our electoral system, so the reason these are factions within parties is because people don't want to break away because they'd see electoral suicide, but say we waved a magic wand and we moved to a PR system of some kind or a proportional system. You look at France, where the Social Democrats got wiped out, the, the conventional left. So you've got, you know, the, for a kind of Corbyn version of social democracy, there probably is a 20-25% core constituency. There is clearly a core constituency on the right, which is divided between conventional centre-right conservatism and then something maybe that's more nationalist, more Farageist or whatever. Chuck a manner is Macron, <laughs> but you know Tom Watson ends up being the person who gets squeezed in this. I mean, it, it seems to me it's at least possible that that centre left thing. Say you've got a separate identity for the Corbyn version, you've got on the right a separating out too. Plus, you've got the independent group, someone coming along claiming to be. Isn't it not possible that actually what gets squeezed still is Tom Watson social democracy? But I think that that argument rests on not engaging with the fact that the countries where the centre-left has done as badly as they have in Europe are all Eurozone countries. There is a very strong correlation, I would say, between the problems of the social democratic parties in the European Union and being a member of the Eurozone. I really don't think it's a coincidence that the two countries where you can see the, the centre-left party, or I know that's a slightly complicated thing to say about the Democrats in, in the US generally, but the centre-left party in, the, in Britain and the United States moves off to the left in response to the 2008 crisis. It's not possible to do that 
within the eurozone because of all the treaty rules that are put in place about what to do about macroeconomic policy. So what you've had, I think, in, in British politics and to some extent in American politics, and we're probably going to see more of that as a democratic nomination contest plays itself out, is the possibility that you can now have a more left-wing economic policy because of what central banks did in response to 2008 and that you can turn what central banks did to save the banks into a left-wing political project. You can't do that within the Eurozone, even though the ECB ended up from 2015 going down the road of, of quantitative easing itself, because it's got way too many treaty constraints on what can be done, or at least the belief that you can do it is not there in the in the same way. So I think it's a lot harder for Tom Watson's part of, of the Labour Party to articulate something that's social democrat and doesn't actually look like some version of Jeremy Corbyn's domestic economic policy, because the whole old Blairite way of doing it relied on the argument that the international economy and financial markets could create these constraints on what centre-left governments can do. And those constraints for non-Eurozone countries don't look like they're in place any longer. And the problem is this is all overdetermined because the other thing that the US and the UK have in common is that we have these two-party first-past-the-post systems. That's the other reason why it's been possible for these parties to be taken to the left, because people do not break away. So it happens that the two that aren't in the Eurozone are also the two that have this but the electoral French system. The system isn't obviously is not first past the post, but the French system usually works to uphold the two main parties because of the second round election effect. And neither of them were able to get into into that second round or the final round. I, I this think time. I would add though to the, the I think those are important points about the different political systems in the Eurozone. I think there is an ideas dimension to it as well in terms of social democracy. You know, this this is a tradition that has been running out of steam actually for quite a long time. Whereas it looked in the era of new labor as if some kind of dramatic reinvention had occurred. Actually that in a sense sort of masked quite a fundamental set of changes in society, the role of technology, the balance between different classes, what's been happening to the working class. Some really fundamental changes have been going on since the 1990s. And the sort of dearth of a coherent response from social democratic parties and intellectuals is, I think, really quite striking and is part of this story. Now, we've got our own particular version of that. But I I do think, actually, the, the, the facts of the squeeze that you're describing, the fact that there is this competitiveness both on the obviously on the Corbyn side but also for them now from the centre means that they they are going to have to go back to some ideas they're going to have to reinvent I think that's the only way forward to make that kind of the kind of distinction that is implied by their political position now and the thing about Tom Watson he's known for a few things so you know he's had a good week because people have dredged up his great weakness which is the witch hunt around child abuse and that is a big weakness for him I think and were he to become more prominent in British politics he's got that hanging over him the other thing he's known for is he's the kind of tech guy who's been thinking about automation he's been thinking about what the digital revolution means for work for family and so on longer than anyone else that is a big plus for him I agree and I think he's I mean he's also actually interestingly broadened into other areas of policy he's all his work on campaigning against sugar and, and yeah, so he's on he's lost a lot of weight he's, you know, he's, but, but he's, he's, he's somebody come on to Boris who's Johnson been in building a, a broader hinterland and I, I think the tech stuff is very important actually because he has long been interested in, in the question of how you do politics differently in the digital era. And that, by the way, is going to be really important for the independent group because, you know, we imagine they're not going to have a lot of followers. They can't have that many people knocking on doors delivering leaflets. They are going to have to really use digital in order to, to create their presence. So I, I think, actually, Tom Watson 
in this particular context is a really interesting figure has potential to start the process it's a long process though and it's clearly something that that goes beyond the particular dilemmas of the british labor party so just to finish next week we're going to talk about brexit again because we think maybe 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 we will have something concrete to discuss but we're still in that on the other side of british politics on the conservative side in that phase where the erg the so-called party within a party is signaling that it may be willing to compromise on some things it said it wouldn't compromise on before but it's also depends which day you read the papers and which papers you read indicating that it may not and that dance is ongoing it's also striking this week i mentioned boris johnson and his weight loss He's also had a new haircut. He reminds me of Shane Warne. You know when Shane Warne had that kind of, when he was going out with Elizabeth Hurley? The Daily Mail did a helpful kind of photo of him with all the work that he's had done. It's fairly minor work, but it's still, he's clearly, quote unquote, running. And it seems completely clear that he is the candidate of the ERG. And so part of the calculation here is, it all depends on whether Theresa May, they believe, will step down relatively soon. And if she will then it probably is worth them putting their weight behind. I mean, this is the difference with the Corbyn picture. I mean, it goes back to what you were saying, Helen, that if the brute fact of Labour politics is that Corbyn is not going, unless of his own volition or because of you know, other reasons, an act of God, anytime soon, Theresa May is going sometime soon. And so the calculation for the party within the party is, are they well-placed to seize the leadership? And Johnson is their candidate. And I'm assuming that they probably are calculating... I mean, the big question is, can they get him on the final two for the members that they are increasingly quite well placed to seize the leadership? I certainly think that they think that they are. I think working out whether they actually are. It's very complicated, isn't it? It's properly about how you get the last two among that group of members, many of whom will do anything to stop Johnson. But he only has to come second. He doesn't have to come first among the MPs to almost certainly come first among the members. I think that the the hard thing in working out what the actual arithmetic is within the Conservative Parliamentary Party for determining the last two is, is you've got to work out how far the ERG can spread out within the party. It looks like it's normally coming out in parliamentary votes between the 80 and 90 level, but if you look at the number of people who voted against, didn't have confidence in Theresa May, if I recall, it was more like 118, something like that. So they've got considerable potential. Then you've got to work out like whether the the people in the party who hate the ERG are going to rally around one candidate themselves. But they have to rally around two candidates. That's the problem. Yeah, and but then also you've got to also then factor in how many people within the Conservative Party, regardless of their views about Brexit or the ERG or anything else, simply loathe the idea of Boris Johnson being leader of the party. Remember, he's already made one abortive attempt to be, you know, like leader where he was knifed by his erstwhile ally. And clearly some of that was to do with, let's call them character issues. So I, I think that's why it's a, it's a really complicated picture, because in one sense, the ERG on pushing Boris, if their candidate, or Boris Johnson, I should say, as their a candidate, are pushing a candidate who is problematic for a significant number of Conservative MPs, regardless of their views of the ERG. A lot depends on what Theresa May signals that she's willing to do. There are no indications that she's going to say anything about stepping down in order to get this vote through. And from what one hears of her, she still seems to believe that she at least... I mean, she's made a commitment not to fight the next election, but she still has 
life in her premiership and there are things that she wants to do and she probably doesn't want to be known as the person who simply delivered Brexit and then quit because you know, she has a wider agenda than that. Presumably this could all break down, even next week's vote could break down if people in the Conservative Party do not have confidence in her word about stepping down relatively soon. And I think there's good reason to think that she might not. I think, though, that that's the last card in this, that Theresa May's got left to play. When, when, all, when all else is like not working and Geoffrey Cox doesn't come back with Brussels for things... Well, she that, offers herself as the yeah, sacrifice. Yeah, she does, and that she offers herself as a sacrifice. And I think, I have to say, I, not knowing the woman at all, obviously, but I can see that that might appeal to her character. Then she goes down as the person who who got Brexit done and was willing to pay the price for doing so. And I think for someone who has basically regarded delivering the the vote of the referendum as, in some sense, her historical purpose, that's a fitting end to the story. As always, there is further reading available at the LRB. That's at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking. We also do produce really excellent show notes for each episode, which will give you all the links that you need. And those are available wherever you get your podcasts. You just need to click on the further description. We think next week we will be talking about something close to a decision about Brexit, maybe. Do please join us for that. My name's David Runciman and we've been talking politics. Okay. We all got our arms crossed. <laughs> Put them back down here because Catherine prefers it if I sit on them. Right. You don't have to sit on them. That's a good idea. I should do that. Oh, it's so hard without coffee. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> okay, three, two, one, go. <clears throat> imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gays wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com